Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from, evil, from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, we ask that you would grant us your Holy Spirit that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. God's faithfulness in the past gives us a lot of insight into his faithfulness in our present and in our future. 
How do you build faith? Do you just look inwardly and go, come on, faith, come on, faith, I got a faith, I got a faith, as if it's a, a verb to faith. Sometimes people talk like that, almost like they're trying to use the force. If you have enough faith, you can do great things. I don't know uh, if you ever tried this, but I more than once tried to walk on water. You know, if I just had the faith, I could do it. Okay, I'm putting my faith into my feet. Faith. Just never worked. What is faith, though? Faith is not primarily inward-looking. It's outward-looking. Faith in God depends on our acknowledgement of who he is. It, it, we have to believe, have some understanding of his goodness and his power. How are we to know what he is like, though? How are we to know a being who has no body? Well, good news. He provided us a word. The scriptures are given for our edification, for our ability to know what he is like, to know how has he dealt with people in the past, and to see the pattern. It's a lot like when you have a job history, when an employer looks at you, they're looking at your job history, because that's the only way they can have any idea of what you're going to be like in the future. It's a lot like that when you're reading the Bible. In a sense, you could say you're reading God's resume. Look at all, wow, I see that you were exemplary with taking such an ordinary person like Israel, someone who had a lot of issues, and wow, look how you blessed him. And I, wow, that's, that's good. Do you think that you could do that in the future? Okay, great. This is, this is looking good. I think we're going to be in business here. By studying the Bible, it increases our faith because we see what he is like. We see his character. We see his power. We see his goodness. We see his wisdom. And this helps us to trust in him for ourselves. This is our primary way of knowing who God is. We neglect his word to our own harm. Now, to be sure, the Bible has a sort of lisp. We have to get used to the way it communicates. And it's, it can be a bit of a learning curve, but the only way to learn is by doing. I don't know if you've ever tried to talk to someone that has a, a strong accent, and at first, you can't make out a word they're saying. But as you, as you listen, you get, okay, we're, we, I think we are speaking the same language, mostly. Okay, you're using some idiom that I'm not familiar with. You kind of pronounce things funny. But eventually, you kind of get it. The, the scriptures can be a little bit like that. And acclimating ourselves to understand what's going on, it becomes easier and easier to understand what God is trying to teach us in any given passage. Knowing God is a great gift. One of the wonderful things about the Christian faith is it is not a, a leap in the dark. It's not, a, it's not an ignorant faith. We're not just saying, have faith in the nebulous unknown. And you go, what in the world are you asking me to trust? It's nebulous. It is unknown. No, that is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is a faith that is informed. It is a faith that is in something it is a faith that is in truth statements and historical events. And while the future is largely unknown to us, who of us can say for sure what the future will bring? Guess what? God knows the future. God knows exactly what will take place. And we know that we can trust him because he has been faithful in the past and he will be faithful in the future. That's essentially what's behind this entire passage. 
Abraham knows his time in the story is coming to an end. And he wants his children and his grandchildren and their offspring to be faithful, to walk in that covenant, to be blessed by the Lord as he himself has been blessed. He's calling them, remember God's faithfulness to me. And you trust in him too. Jacob knew God's blessing. The time of Jacob's death was drawing close. He wanted to give his sons his blessing before he died, as his father Isaac had done before him. His father Isaac thought, of course, that he was going to die about 80 years before he actually died. But the same sort of desire um, drove both of them. They both felt like their time on earth was coming to an end, and they wanted to make sure their children were blessed by the Lord. Israel had lived a long, eventful life. You could say that he has had many uh, adventures. He's had lots of challenges. He's been on, in fear for his life on numerous occasions, and he has been blessed beyond his understanding. He has been blessed tremendously, and he wants to leave a legacy. He wants to ensure that his legacy of faith in the covenant promises of God is carried on. And so chapters 48 and 49 are both devoted to this, him blessing his sons, each one by name, 48 is uh, real. It should be read with 49, but for the sake of uh, not having a two and a half hour sermon, I'm going to spare you from that. We're going to do them separately. But it is significant to understand that um, what we're looking at here is is not just a chapter in isolation. We should have some understanding of what's come before it, and it's it's forward looking to the legacy of God's covenant people of Israel. In chapter 48, the focus is on uh, the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, of, of Joseph. Notice that at the very beginning, their, or, their name orders are Manasseh and Ephraim in verse 1. That's their birth order. But later on, um, that order is, is switched, and that's done for a very specific reason. The importance of Israel adopting Ephraim and Manasseh might be lost on us at first. Um, it would be rather odd, I think, if I, if I took my, my children to see their grandfather and he said, uh, I'm going to adopt your kids. And I'd say, but I'm alive and I am taking care of them. I, I really don't need you to adopt them. To make it a little bit weirder, uh, they are not children. They're about 20 years old at the time. We're not talking about little little boys. So actually, it's funny when you read it that way. It, perhaps it, it seems at first like you're, you assume they're children because it says, oh, he, he brought his sons to see their grandpa. They're, they're men. They're, they're adults. So when it talks about he took them off of his knee, you go, oh, that, that must have been fun, <laughs> sitting, sitting on grandpa's knee as an adult. Um, but what we're really looking at here is more legal. It's, it has a lot of legal importance, and it has to do with a lot of inheritance stuff. The reason that they are adopted uh, by uh, Jacob is so that they can have a double portion, so that Joseph's offspring would have a double portion. That is, the firstborn's right of, of a double inheritance is given uh, to his offspring. And so it's a way for uh, the firstborn of Rachel, so just to recap a little bit, uh, Jacob ended up with four wives. Uh, the first 
um, that he married was Leah, the, one, the sister that he did not want, but she was older. He got tricked into it. It's a whole thing. You can go back and read it. Um, and then he had Rachel, who he really wanted. She was the only one that he really wanted the whole time. And then the sisters got into a little bit of a uh, who's going to be dominant in the household, and let's figure it out by who has the most children. So uh, Rachel wasn't able to have children, and so she gave her maidservant to him uh, so that he could have children through her, and Rachel would get ahead. And then Leah did the same thing. Um, and then finally, Rachel was able to have two children. Interestingly enough, the, the unloved sister, Leah, ended up with six sons, and each of the other ones ended up with two. It's interesting uh, the, way, the way that that played out, that the, the sister that really only got married because she got, her husband got tricked into marrying her is the one that God blessed the most, and fully half of the tribes of Israel come from her. But Jacob never forgot that he loved Rachel the most, and so he wanted um, Joseph's line to have more of a share in the covenant, right alongside Reuben and Sibion, uh, both of which are Leah's firstborn. So there's an interesting uh, power dynamic going on here within the covenant family uh, that we should pay attention to. This also informs subsequent generations of Israelites why Ephraim and Manasseh were tribes. At, this, at the point that um, Genesis was written, um, the Israelites had come out of Egypt, out of slavery. God had delivered them out, and they were getting ready to enter into the promised land. And so they needed to understand who are we as a people? What is our history like? And among these things is Ephraim and Manasseh. Why are they tribes when actually they should be just segments of the tribe of Joseph. But what's interesting is when you read the accounts of Israel conquering the land, you have detailed um, tribal allotments of land. This tribe is going to get this portion of land, this tribe, this one. There's, there's 12 allotments, and uh, there's no tribe of Joseph mentioned. There's Ephraim and Manasseh mentioned as tribes. Now, if you're doing your math, here's how it works out. How many sons does Jacob have? He has 12 sons, okay? He adopts the two sons of Joseph as his own sons, meaning how many are there now? Ah, 13, because he's skipping over Joseph as his own tribe. Um, so now, how many tribal allotments should there be? Ah, except Levi does not get a tribal allotment. Do you know why? because he's the priestly line. And so they get no land inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance. How do they live? Well, they live because all the other tribes bring uh, their burnt offerings to the tribe of Levi to sacrifice. And so the, the Levites live off of the religious activity of the rest of the tribes. So adopting Ephraim and Manasseh mean that there's still 12 tribal allotments of land, but 13 tribes, official tribes. So that's a, that's a bit of backstory to help you understand what's going on. Later on, sometimes they'll refer to the half-tribe of Manasseh or the half-tribe of Ephraim. The reason it does that is because they're both Joseph line. Um, and indeed, um, Ephraim increases to the point that in, in later times, in the divided monarchy, eventually uh, the 
tribes of Israel break away from the tribe of Judah, and there is a, a long-standing civil war between the northern and the southern kingdoms. Judah is the southern kingdom, Israel's the northern kingdom. And the tribe of Ephraim is so dominant, there are so many of them, that sometimes that whole kingdom is, is referred to as Ephraim. You see that especially in the prophets, where it'll say something about Ephraim, da 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 da, da. It means Israel, because there's so many of them. Um, so you see origins of that here, where Ephraim is giving the uh, dominant blessing over his older brother, Manasseh. Reading scripture in that light of why was it written, what is it trying to communicate to God's covenant people, I find very helpful. Um, it's not just what does it say, but why does it say that? The Bible is pretty terse in its, in its details. It doesn't give you a lot of excess details that are extraneous. It's always telling you things for a reason, so it's important to understand. This is God's word given to his people for a good reason. The covenant family was far from perfect. That comes through very strongly as you read the accounts in Genesis. You would think that perhaps you would be reading a bit of, um, in technical terms, it's called hagiography. It's, it means holy writing. It's, it's what you do if, um, let's say, you're a really big fan of George Washington. Okay, So in writing your biography, you only say the good things. And he's the best, and he's the smartest, and he's the kindest, and he's the most gentlemanly, and he's the most handsome, and he's the tallest, and he's the strongest. and he's That's hagiography, because you're only looking at the good aspects. No one can really read Genesis and go hagiography, because it shows you warts and all. You see a lot of flaws in the covenant family. Why do they do that? It's not just a, a desire to be rigorous and record everything as it happened, because there's actually a lot that we it blanks, we know nothing about. Like, for example, after um, Joseph becomes the, the regent of all of Egypt, he has his entire family move there with him, and for 17 years, he's able to live there with, with Jacob, and he's taking care of the family, and things are going well, they're increasing and multiplying, and that is exactly how much we know they increased and multiplied. You don't have any details. So we're not talking about they're just trying to tell you everything that happened. Otherwise, let's be honest, the book would be enormous and unwieldy and not useful. And then he ate, and then he washed, and then he went and took care of the sheep, and one of them had wandered away. And so he went to go find it. This would be very boring, recording everything. But what it tells us is an accurate picture of men that were very flawed, that were prone to sin, that were tempted, that were selfish, that lied sometimes, that tricked people sometimes, that were even violent at times, and yet the point is not their greatness, their faithfulness, their righteousness. The point is God's faithfulness, his righteousness, his mercy, because it was vital that Israel understand you are not God's people because you're better. God chose you. God was merciful to you. God is faithful to you in spite of yourself. You don't deserve God's favor. It is given so that he gets all the glory. But they forgot this anyway. And they became proud and they looked down on others and they felt very proud of themselves when in reality, the whole point is you're not really that great. God is great you are flawed. You depend on his goodness, his righteousness, not yours. 
So that's all backstory. So word comes to Jacob, um, or word came to Joseph that Jacob was ill, and it doesn't seem like he knows that they're about to get this final blessing. It seems as if he just wants to see his father and make sure his sons see their grandfather before he dies. We're, I don't even know for sure that uh, Jacob was was planning this because it seems like it's somewhat of a surprise uh, in verse two. And it came and it was told to Jacob, "Your son Joseph has come to you." Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. He's weak at this point. Sitting up in bed is summoning your strength. He's he's bad off, but he has this opportunity and he wants to take it to bless his children. And I, I would assume, but I don't know, that he's planned that he is going to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh. But this is all coming about, and you see echoes of exactly the the situation where his father Isaac had weak eyes and was on his deathbed, and he said, I'm going to bless Esau, my older, my favorite son. And Rebekah overheard him saying this because Isaac was trying to do it in secret, where in reality, these things are not supposed to be done in secret. It's supposed to be public. Um, But uh, Rebekah Isaac's wife overheard this, and her favorite son was Jacob, and so she came up with this whole scheme to have uh, Jacob impersonate Esau and uh, dress in his clothes and and talk like him and and pretend to be him in order to steal the blessing. And so there's an interesting uh, echo of that here, but it's it's significantly different in that, um, whereas in Genesis 27, where we read that account, Uh, There's all sorts of tricks and deception, and the family trust is broken, and there's a tremendous severing of uh, family ties at that moment. As you would predict, Esau becomes enraged and says that he is going to kill his brother Jacob, and that's what forces Jacob to flee. Here, you have none of that. There are no tricks. There is no deception. It is all above reproach. The weak patriarch um, is roused in strength, and he, does, he acts knowing what he's doing. Even the reversal of the blessing, he says, I know, I know what I'm doing. I'm not being tricked. I have reasons. Jacob started by recounting God's goodness to him, and he says, um, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Luz? Where's Luz? Well, Luz is where he, God first appeared to him, but it was renamed by him as Bethel. House of God, Beit Ale, House of God. Um, but Luz was its original name. You see this in, in Genesis 28, uh, 13 through 19. Um, this was one of the most important events of his long life. He had many important events along the way, but this changed his life. You can tell that it changed his life because this is what he points to as the, the moment that things changed for him. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. you got to remember, where was he at this moment in his life? He's alone. He has nothing but the clothes on his back. He has no wife. He has no property. He's fleeing for his life. And God says, not only are you going to survive, 
I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you, make you a company of peoples, give you this land for a possession. This changed his life. God changed Jacob's perspective on life by telling him that he would be blessed with many offspring when at the time he had no wife, no wealth, he had nothing. That's the whole point, that God would do all of this so that Jacob could not sit back and go, I did it. He has to go, God did it. Now, at the time, he didn't have great ambitions. In fact, after hearing God's word to him, God's promise, look at what he says in uh, Genesis 28, 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all and of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. All he really wants, he ignores the whole blessing and uh, multiplying you. And he just says, food to eat, clothing to wear, come back home safe. His ambitions are really small. God's ambitions for him, God's plans for him were a lot more ambitious, would call for a lot more faith. And God kept those promises. And Israel at this point can look back at his life and see God's hand of blessing, see him guiding him along the way, protecting him, keeping his word to him. That's the foundation of faith is God keeps his word. If he says it, he's going to do it. You can believe it. You can build your life on it. That's the life of faith. God had been faithful to him, and he believed that God would continue to keep those covenant promises to his offspring after him. We have to understand Faith does not happen in isolation. It does not spring out of thin air. It must start with something external to believe in. It starts with some sort of of statement. It has to start somewhere. We have to start with who God is. The, The Christian faith is a message of hope built on truth statements about what God has done in history. It is a powerful message. One of my pet peeves, by the way, is when people say, Uh, This is an old quote, but um, people use it all the time. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Have you ever heard that one? I hate that one. You know why? Because the gospel is a message primarily. Now, it does impact the way you live, and it must impact the way you live, but use words if necessary is not a reflection of what the gospel primarily is. The gospel means good news. Here's the good news. King Jesus has won a great victory over sin and death, and he has secured salvation for all who believe. That's the gospel. That does impact the way you live, but it does require words. Maybe you should say preach the gospel at all times and live like what you're saying is true. That's not as, you know, snazzy, but it is more true. Um. The Christian faith is built on the testimonies of God's people finding God's promises to be true. The Bible is the written record of God's promises working with God's people powerfully to transform their lives. The gospel is not God loves you and wants you to stay exactly as messed up as you are right now. 
No, God loves you and wants to see you thrive, wants to see you leave behind those those old sinful habits that are crushing you, that are causing you pain, that are causing other people pain. He does not want you to just stay in that old, dirty, messed up state. He comes to give us life and to give it abundantly. That's the gospel. If we lose sight of that, we've forgotten what it's all about. And so that those testimonies of faith that you have in Scripture are powerful, and those testimonies that you can give in your life are also powerful. I have been greatly encouraged hearing other Christians talk about how God was faithful to them in a difficult situation. When they say, yeah, I was, I was fearful. I didn't know what, what the future was going to hold for me. I didn't, I didn't know what to do, but, but God blessed me. God put these people in my life. He gave me these opportunities. He brought me out of that dark place into a much better place. That encourages me to believe too. To okay, I'm going to I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to I'm going to pray. I'm going to be faithful. And I have found God to be incredibly faithful in keeping his promises. How can you bless someone else? Sometimes as simply as talking about what God has done in your life can be a powerful testimony. There's a reason why um, testimonies are used to sell things. You know, if you're selling um, dishcloths, um, having people say, this dishcloth really wipes, spills up. It is the most absorbent thing I've ever used. It is the best dishcloth ever. Might make be more convincing to you if you trust the person, of course than if you don't have any testimony about it. There's a reason why they use that sort of thing. Testimonies are powerful. Testimonies of God's faithfulness are also powerful. Now, one of the frustrating things that that you may have experienced, because I've experienced it, is trying to get someone to believe that the testimony that you're giving is not just a sales pitch, that it's like, no, really, Jesus is powerful in your life. Jesus can help you. Believe that. It's difficult. And so we rely on on the Holy Spirit's work in their heart to really make that message land. But God has called each one of us to be faithful, to point people to our Lord with our words and with our lives. So Jacob uh, has this, this plan to see that his offspring are blessed, that they thrive, that they trust in the Lord's promises, that they have that same kind of faith in the covenant of God that he had that changed his life. He wants to pass that message on. And where to our modern eyes, Israel adopting his grandson seems very strange, it's for a good reason, and it makes sense in the context that they're, that they're living in. What we see here is an is a adoption formula with him saying, uh, who are these? He knows who they are, but it's a, it's a ritual question, um, kind of like um, when I do a wedding, um, I'll say, who gives this woman to be married? I know who he is, but it's, it's part of the ceremony. So when he says, who are these? He knows who they are. But he's saying, identify yourselves, just so we're all clear about what's going on. The laying on of hands is very ritual. The right hand is the the hand of the most blessing. These are not children, remember. These are adult men. And yet you still see tremendous affection 
being shown, even in this very ceremonial thing, even the placing them on their on the knees, that's a ceremonial act. That's like saying, these, these are mine. These are my children. So the placing on the knees is, is part of the ceremony. Now, I'm not exactly sure how he was situated in the bed or anything to have them sitting on his knee, but he's he's following the the letter of the customs of the of the time to see that this adoption takes place we also see that he points to Rachel as a reason why he is adopting them he says as for me when i came to padan that's shorthand for padan aram that's where he fled uh, to his uncle laban where he married rachel and leah um, as for me, when I came from Paddan, so he's leaving there, going back to Canaan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. She died in childbirth, giving birth to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And what's ironic about her dying in childbirth is that um, she wanted children more than anything. And in fact, um, back in, in Genesis 30, verse 1, uh, she has not had children when she says this. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. She wants children more than life itself. And then um, when she has Joseph, she says, uh, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Of course, the great tragedy is that in giving her another son, she also loses her life. And he feels, Jacob feels, that he should have had more children with her. And so in adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, he's identifying these are going to be like the sons I never had. I am going to love them as my very own. And he even mentions I came to you in Egypt, um, these are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. They are going to be equal shares in the covenant, in these uh, tribal allotments. It seems then that in some way, Jacob is trying to make up for what happened with, with Rachel. He still feels the loss of her, even all these years later. Ephraim and Manasseh were more than the sons of his favorite son. They were now his legal adopted sons. By legally adopting them, Israel was able to ensure that Joseph gets a double portion in the birthright of land. And so we, we see all of this is, is done for a purpose. It's not just him kind of being senile here. The adoption ritual involved the identification of the, of the parties. Um, now, why does he reverse the birth order? Why does he bless Ephraim over Manasseh? He doesn't say specifically, but it is interesting. There's, there's been a theme in the entire um, book of Genesis, and certainly in the life of Jacob, of a struggling against the cultural norm of the primogeniture, the um, right of the firstborn. That the firstborn is, is the one that gets all the blessing. In his life, he was struggling against Esau literally from the womb. When um, his mother, Rebecca, was pregnant, um, she said that she felt the children struggling inside of her. And, and God said, yeah, there, there is a struggle inside of you. There's two nations that are doing battle, struggling with one another. And the older will serve the younger. And that is exactly what came about as uh, Esau came to serve his brother. 
and Jacob, the younger, had the blessing. We see this dynamic at play even earlier than that, though. We see this in Genesis 17, where you have um, Abraham as an old man, and he's had a son, Ishmael, through Hagar, a servant, an, an Egyptian servant, interestingly enough. And um, he's old. He's over 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90. And um, God says, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And, and he's like, no. He, he laughs and he says, that's, that's, that's crazy. What? Let's just have Ishmael. That's easier, God. Why don't we just have Ishmael? He's 13 years old. He's here. Let's just go with that. And God says, no. Sarah, your, your wife, is going to have a son. And so she has Isaac, the son of promise. The younger son is the son of the covenant, the one who the blessing of the covenant will go through. And again, we see it in, in um, Jacob being blessed over his older brother Esau. Even in the birth of Judah's two sons by Tamar, uh, Perez is blessed before Zerah, even though Zerah was able to put his hand out first and they put a red ribbon on his wrist to show that he was the firstborn. He brought the hand back in and out came his brother. And so the, the midwife says, what a breach you have made to the baby. And so she names him Breach. That's his name. Breach. Because he broke out before his brother. And you see it uh, finally here with Ephraim over Manasseh. What's the point of all this? The point here is that God delights to go against social norms. He goes, oh, yeah, you think you know how things go? You think that um, this is how things are always going to be? God goes, no, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to bless who I want to bless so that the glory is mine. He wants to sort of subvert the expectations that we have as, as human beings and go, don't you... Don't you think that I can't do something? If I want to bless the younger, I will. So he, he's blessing them. He, he embraces them. He kisses them. Signs of tremendous affection. And then he turns to Joseph, his favorite son, and says, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. He's overflowing with thankfulness. You can't help but read this and get a little, a little teary-eyed as you remember. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery and told their father that he had been eaten by wild animals. And so for 22 years, Joseph was dead to his father. He had no idea that in reality he was in Egypt and God was raising him to a position of great power through which he himself would be saved from starvation. He had no idea any of that was going on. He sees the reunion with his, with his son as a, as a resurrection from the dead. He never expected to see his face. And now, not only does he see his face, not only has he lived with him for 17 blessed years, he also sees his sons. What a tremendous blessing this was. Ephraim and Manasseh are now adopted as his own sons. Jacob knew full well that all of this was God's doing, and he was so thankful. Faith in God and thankfulness to God ought to go together, though. They go together because faith understands that all things come from God's good hand according to his good plans, and thankfulness is the proper response to knowing that our blessings come from God. 
If you really have, have the eyes of faith, you cannot also help but have a thankful heart. And perhaps there's a, a relationship in which practicing thankfulness increases your faith as you reflect on, God has blessed me a lot. Wow. God really has kept his promises to me. God really has blessed me beyond what I deserve. I should trust in him more. Jacob knew God would bless him in the future. Israel could not have been clearer that the tradition of faith handed down from Abraham and Isaac was what he wanted his children to follow. When he says in verse 15, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. There's a, this old formula that you see in the beginning of Genesis of walking with the Lord as a, you know, they, they, you wouldn't say that he, someone's a Christian at that point. Christ hasn't come yet. But this is a way of saying the life of faith. They walk with God. And he says, I have walked with God. My fathers have walked with God. My children need that blessing from the God that we have served and found so faithful. God was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his offspring could entrust themselves to his good care. The journey of faith is not one of isolation. It is one that is both received and then passed on. One of the great mistakes that Christians can make, especially in the States, especially in the evangelical tradition, is this. They think that Christianity was born 20 years ago, like it has no history that they could learn from, like they could never learn from past generations because, you know, we're modern now and we know everything now. It's a terrible mistake to throw away the tradition, the lessons learned from the history of God's people. There is great wisdom to be learned. There is great blessing to be gained from understanding that you have received a faith that has gone back to the creation of the world. There's a long line, sort of like a relay race, one generation passing the baton on to the next one. And it's important because you see both of those aspects here, both the, yes, faith of my fathers, but also faith that will carry on through my children and their children and their children we're always one generation away. We need to pass the faith on. We need to teach our children what it means to be God's people. This has all of life implications. When we talk about this, when we talk about the life of faith, I don't mean come to church on Sundays. That's only one aspect of the life of faith. We're talking about a whole life approach so that the way that you interact with your friends, the way that you interact at work, what you do in school, all of that should be within the bounds of walking with the Lord in faith. And so the, the journey of faith is lived in community with other people. The Bible talks about meeting together for mutual encouragement. It talks about the older teaching the younger. It talks about learning from the, the teachers, the pastors. It talks about praying for one another because we need all of that. We need all of those supports. If you haven't been with God's people and you feel discouraged, I have an idea of why you're discouraged. 
because you're actually neglecting what God has told you to do to be encouraged. Be with God's people. Be a blessing to others. The church is not a spectator sport. When we talk about ministry, ministry is not only something that the professionals do. It's something that the body of Christ does for one another. And it's a beautiful thing when we need that. The faith that we receive from our spiritual fathers, we pass on to others. And we can learn from these things. Both the failures and the successes of our forefathers can be learned from. I don't want to make those same mistakes, but I want to learn from those success stories. The faith that we pass on means that we need to make a real effort to ensure that our children understand their spiritual heritage, that they understand God made you, God loves you, God knows what's best for you, God forgives you when you sin. We need to pass on this legacy that we ourselves are carrying on from those that came before us. So we pray and we seek to be diligent to tell those younger about God's goodness to us and how they can trust him in the future. Joseph uh, tried to correct his father's placement of the hand, saying, no, no, father, but his his father said, no, I know what I'm doing, and this is how it's going to be. The history of Israel showed that, indeed, this would come about. I do wonder about how much Jacob knows uh, about what will happen in the future. It's kind of an interesting cause-effect. You know, does he... Does he do this because he knows what will happen, or does it happen because of this blessing? I don't know. It's in the sovereignty of God at the end of the day, I suppose. Jacob knew full well that his role in redemptive history was about to be over, but he knew that God's story of redemption would go on. And so he says, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. That's a wonderful thing. One of the most um, difficult things about thinking about our own mortality is what happens when I'm gone. And you think about the people that depend on you. You think about those things that you've worked for your whole life. What will happen to those things? Jacob trusts that he has not been the primary mover. It's been God. That's the primary mover in the story. He's convinced that though his life is about to end, God will continue to keep those promises. God will be with you. God will bring you again to the land of your fathers, the promised land of Canaan. The story's not over. He looked forward in faith that God would bring his children back to the land of promise and fulfill every promise he had made That is a wonderful reminder for us. If you're looking at your own mortality and you're going, it's all going to fall apart unless I am doing it, unless I am out there pushing the ball forward, it's all going to end. You haven't yet grasped that you're not the main character. God is the main character. God is sovereign. Trust in God's sovereignty to continue to work in your family, in your loved ones, to carry on a legacy of faith. Now we get an interesting statement from the patriarch. 
Moreover, I have given you to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope. Now, that word mountain slope is the word Shechem. Anyone remember what Shechem is? Shechem is a site that is infamous in the, in the days of Jacob because it was Shechem that they settled in when, they, when he first came back into Canaan. Um, so let's, let's flip over there to Genesis 34 for a moment. Um, we're going to look at what happened at Shechem. First of all, in, um, in uh, 33, uh, 18, we read this. And Jacob came safely to the land to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, so Shechem is both the place name and a person, the, the prince of the city, he bought for a hundred pieces of money of the, pieces of, of the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So he does legally purchase land in Shechem. Why does the ESV translate it mountain slope? Because the Hebrew um, is, it, it's a play on words. Shechem is both a place name, but it also, it means shoulder. Um, so what it literally says is um, the mountain shoulder, if you're going to, if you're going to read it that way. But probably he's talking about the place Shechem um, also because look at what follows. So he's not actually talking about the purchase of land here. Um, he says that I took from the hand of the Amorites, that's the people of Canaan, with my sword and with my bow. And you might think back to what you know about Shechem. Um, who fought in Shechem? Not Jacob. He did not fight. In fact, it was unbeknownst to him, it was his sons, specifically Simeon and Levi. So the story goes like this. They settle outside this city. Things are going well, except one day um, Jacob's daughter Dinah went out to visit with the Canaanite women. And while she was out, Prince Shechem, young, powerful, entitled, sees her and takes her by force. And then um, Shechem and his father came to Jacob and uh, said, hey, we want to we wanna marry your daughter. But actually, they didn't make it to Jacob because his sons coming in from the field intercepted. And when they found out, they were furious. And they said, okay, uh, we can't let our sister marry you unless you're circumcised, you and the entire city. The abomination for one of us to marry an uncircumcised. And so Shechem goes, great, deal. Circumcise the entire city. Three days later, they're all in pain. Levi and Simeon take advantage and kill the whole place. Slaughtered. Men, women, children take all the possessions for themselves. And then in uh, verse 30, 30 of uh, 30, uh, chapter 34, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You can feel their rage. They're not sorry for what they did. He's mad at them. 
because it is dangerous, the situation that they've now put him in. God protected the family the, and the inhabitants of the land didn't band together and, and try to wipe out the family of, of Jacob, though that was a, a real possibility at that point. So, but it's interesting, the, 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 the shift where Jacob at this point in his life, at the end of his life, is able to say, yeah, that land's mine, and I did it. I take responsibility. My sword, my bow, it belongs to me. It's pretty interesting, the perspective that Jacob has now. Now it seems that he has made peace with what happened. This is all to say, even the violent mistakes are part of God's sovereign plan. Even those aspects that you wish, boy, I wish that never happened. That was, that was horrible. God used that for his purposes. God used that to make you who you are. God used that to bring you where you are. Israel knew full well that his sons were sinners, and their sons would be sinners. He knew that many mistakes would be made, but he also knew firsthand that God was still in control and would fulfill his goodwill no matter what. God's grace and mercy are the very foundations for our hopes, since without them, we would be lost without hope of salvation. How sovereign is God if he has no control when sin takes place? Knowing that sin is present in every person, that would make God not sovereign at all. Further, if God tossed you away whenever you sinned, there would be no one left. God's grace is that he takes sinners and calls them his own, forgiving them, redeeming them for himself. He adopts us into his very family. What a tremendous gift of mercy and grace. God's amazing covenant was made with sinful people like you and me. I had a guy come up to me a few months ago when I was preaching about um, that, that passage, actually, Shechem. He said, uh, I don't like this. this. These are not good, good, good guys. I don't like this story. I said, I don't like it either. Um, he said, I don't think God should bless people like this. I don't think God should use people like this. I said, well, you're right that they don't deserve it. Do you? Do you really deserve it? Have you disqualified yourself? Have you sinned against the Lord? He said, yeah, but, you know, not like that. Okay, so now you're going to rank the sins. Sure, I've sinned, but not as much as, you know, this one over here, this guy. Woo. He doesn't, I don't want him to be in the same family as me. No, 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 no. My friends, once we start doing this, once we start saying my sins are okay, but not, not your sins, we've forgotten what it's all about. God's grace is not only for those sins that we think are not so bad. God's grace is for every sin. We become recipients of the covenant promises, not because we deserve it, 
We become heirs of the covenant promises because God is faithful. We are saved by faith in God, not by works. We do not deserve the blessings that God's promises uh, have, but we walk with him in faith. The glory is all God's. It's not ours. We don't stand before the world and say we are the most righteous because we deserve it. We say we are God's beloved because we trust in him. We believe his promises. He has died to redeem us. John 3.16, one of the most famous passages of all, beautiful promise. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life is the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive, and it is given freely. By faith, you become a recipient of that good promise. The same God that redeemed Jacob from evil is the same God that redeems believers in the Lord Jesus Christ from our sins. Look back at uh, Genesis 48, 16. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. We see God's preservation of his people, God increasing that blessing. Let them become a multitude. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Reminds us of the plan of God is bigger than just you. It's meant for all believers. One of the greatest promises that we have in the New Testament era is that when we talk about the family of God, we don't mean your genetics. You don't need to do a 23andMe to decide, can I be one of God's people? Good news. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You are adopted into the family of God. You are God's son. You are God's daughter by faith. Regardless of your genetic heritage, faith unites us to God's promises. Christians are called from all the families of the earth, united together by one Holy Spirit, given to all believers in the work of Jesus Christ. This is the great hope that we have, that we carry on this tradition of faith that we have received and entrust that to our children as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the faithfulness that you have proven over and over again. Lord, we thank you for your covenant promises. We thank you, Lord, that you have not treated us as our sins deserved, but have called sinful people like us to be redeemed by the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you protect us from evil? Lord, would you help us to walk before you in faithfulness and love? In Jesus' name, amen.